Hello, my friends. This is life coach Mike Chargman, and welcome to an episode of Mike's Search for Meaning. I'm after some big questions. Why are we here? What makes a fulfilling life? How can we grow individually and collectively? Each episode, I'll dive deep with leaders who are doing great work in the world and see how they organize their life. Books read, value systems, resources used, and stories that show how each of you can create the life and the world of your dreams. Welcome, my friends, to episode 106 of the Mike's Search for Meaning podcast. My guest today is Robbie Swale. And you can connect with Robbie at his website, robbieswale.com. He is the author of four books. He is the host of two podcasts. My favorite is the Coach's Journey podcast. And he's available on Instagram, LinkedIn, YouTube. There are lots of ways you can connect with Robbie. I'll make sure they are all linked in the show notes. Additionally, I always donate to and raise awareness for the organization of my guest choice. And Robbie has selected the organization Give Directly, which is also linked in the show notes. So please check out all the ways you can connect with Robbie. Check out Give Directly. If you feel so called to, please join me in donating to Give Directly. And this conversation was a really joyous one on several levels. We break down a lot of the unconscious rules that we live by in our life if we're not intentional about creating the life that we want. Get a nice house, make a lot of money. There are certain ways that we might, (laughs) for example, a, a really common one is if you don't answer someone's email within 24 hours saying, I'm really sorry for the delay in my response. And Robbie and I have a a fun time picking apart the different rules that are prescribed to us in a lot of ways by culture, society, and breaking free from those rules in a way that's aligned with who you want to be and how you want to show up as a person, which in a lot of ways is what people come to coaching with. They want to break free of living life on other people's terms and start living life on their own terms. And perhaps my favorite part of this conversation actually is this concept of leading with honor, which seems to be top of mind and top of heart with Robbie these days. And a really powerful way to think about leading with honor is if you imagine your funeral and you imagine your nearest and dearest speaking about you at your funeral, what would you want them to say about you? And Robbie really openly shares what this experience is like for him as he envisions his life, the life that he wants to live, what would he want people to say about him, his nearest and dearest? And it's really touching and it's a really potent way to be in touch with how you want to show up in your daily life. There are lots of other fun parts of this conversation. I I love in the beginning, we riff on that Robbie and I both host long form podcasts and some of our episodes total over two hours. Robbie has some of my favorite episodes that Robbie has conducted on the Coach's Journey podcast go for two hours and 20 minutes. And some of my favorite conversations total at over two hours as well. And given that I don't have a big following, a lot of people gave me advice that I should do shorter interviews because no one's going to listen to someone with a small following who's creating two hour conversations. And I think this is applicable to you as a listener, because there are times where it really helps to listen to your own inner voice, especially around creativity. 
And so we discern in this conversation, how do you listen to your inner voice when everyone is telling you you should do a 30 minute conversation or a shorter podcast when my heart and soul is telling me to do a longer form conversation? And how does Robbie guide his clients into similar experiences around creativity, creating something that's authentic and true to you? Lastly, before I let Robbie take over, it really makes a big difference for the show if you take some time and leave a review. So whether you're listening on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or elsewhere, please take some time to leave a review on whatever platform you're listening on. The reviews go a long way. With all that said, settle in, take a deep breath, and enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Robbie Swale. Robbie Swale, welcome to uh, my version of just long-form, rich, deep podcast fodder. Welcome to Mike's Search for Meaning. <laughs> Mike, it's great to be here. And as someone who loves long, rich podcast fodder, I'm delighted that that's what we're going to be do doing today. <laughs> so you've listened to a couple of my episodes, and I, I think you know where I typically start with, but I... I just, I was really appreciating the question. You asked me a beautiful question right before we jumped on here. And I've done, I think I've recorded 106 episodes at the time of our recording today. I've released 101 so far. And you asked me something along the lines of what made for the, the best conversations that you've had so far. And you've been a guest on, I think, probably about the same amount of shows that I've, that I've now hosted. You, you've done at least 100 because you did the 100 podcast challenge. So I actually am curious to know what made for the best conversations as the interviewee, as, as someone who was being hosted. What, what made for the best podcast conversations that you've been on now that you've done triple digit episodes? Yeah. Yeah, so <laughs> it's a great question. I have been a, on a lot of podcasts, and, and we could talk about that because that was a kind of that's how we originally connected. Uh, no, it wasn't, was it? it? It was almost how we originally connected. It was part of that initial connection, um, yes. and it, and it was a great, it was an amazing game for me to play, a way to challenge myself. I mean, it was really interesting because I kind of got the you could suddenly really feel, especially because sometimes I. So my challenge for, for listeners was that as part of as part of promoting my books, I would try and appear on 100 podcasts in 2022. And there are various ways that I set that up for success and, and different things. But it meant that, you know, I didn't, I got going slowly because that's how these things work. And so the pressure was up. And the second half, I, you know, I did more in the second half than, of the year than the first half of the year. And I did more in the last three months than in any other three month section. So there were days when I would do a few. But even without that, doing that many in a relatively short space of time of, of a year, you get to really feel the difference. And for me, what I loved, what I loved, is something really similar to what you said about what's been, what's made the great episodes of this show great, which is attunement and presence between two people exploring things together. And you could really feel if you were on, if you're being interviewed, not that there's anything wrong with either of these, but my preference, you could really feel if you were being interviewed by somebody who had thought about the conversation a lot, but was then in the moment versus somebody who had thought about the conversation a lot and created a map for that conversation and was following it and you know mm -hmm. following it almost to the extent sometimes of I'm gonna, i've got six questions or 10 questions that i'm going to ask robbie we're going to ask them and then that's it and it's like there's no problem with that it's just that as an experience 
as a human, being able to be in presence with people, being attuned, discovering new things through the conversation. Like that is a, I mean, as both you and I know from coaching, both as a, as a, as a kind of coaching client and doing that work with people, that in itself is a kind of quite a transformational thing. And so to, to get to do that, mm. right, like four times in a week towards the end is really different to, to get asked some questions by somebody. And you could feel, the yeah. other thing to say is, I got to really feel the quality of listening, which is not that, I don't usually feel that that much anymore because I'm not, either I'm not paying it, you know, in normal life, I, I don't pay that much attention to it. And when I'm being coached, I, I'm being coached by people who are expert listeners because that's one of the things I seek out. It, it was interesting to feel. I guess I'm, I'm noticing in this moment, I'm remembering where it, there were some where the, the questions were kind of mapped and followed, which felt mm -hmm. like that. And there were some which still had some of that feeling of attunement because the host was an expert listener in some way. So that would be being listened to really beautifully. I, I got to kind of feel that difference again, which I haven't thought about in that way for, for quite a while. Mm hmm it's the same on, on my end, you know, I think that we, we gave similar answers in, in different ways, but there's just something so beautiful about the conversations where, yes, the, the way you said it's perfect. Yes, there was preparation beforehand and I did my work and I did my research and I, I might have even mapped out what a great conversation would look like in my head. And there's this natural emergence in the moment and, and attunement to each other that you can't possibly plan for, right? In some ways, I think that's why I've fallen in love with coaching for many reasons. But one of the things that I've fallen in love with about coaching is that it's it's this intersection of, of so many different things that, that contribute to a moment being beautiful, but it, it has me in touch with what is beautiful about being alive. And, and one of the things that I experience as the most beautiful about being alive is when someone's just really there with you. And, and we can all feel that. But some of us are trained to, to pay attention for what, what that looks like. And yeah, this is, this is helping me click some insights around how I want to continue to show up as a coach, as a, as a podcast host. Because yeah, when I, when I hear someone talk about the kind of six to 10 planned questions, I, there's a, I, I turn away from it and I, I almost have some level of contempt or like, oh my God, who would do that? But, but in a way, I, I actually, I think there's a lot of, I don't know if it's conditioning or it, it, we're, we're taught to plan for things. We're taught to plan every aspect of our life in, in a lot of ways. And so it actually makes sense. And to a certain extent, I do that before, before the conversation happens. Like I've, I've listened to you on several podcasts, Robbie, and there's, there are times where there's magic that happens in the episode. And I'm like, there's a part of me that wants to bottle that up and create, you know, what's the question that they ask. And I make, make sure that I ask Robbie that same exact question. And it's, it's this dance of, of so many different things. But anyway, I'm just, I'm really appreciating that you asked me that question and uh beforehand about what makes for really great episodes the, the most memorable ones for me and that you know that's something that i think in the intake form of my podcast i ask you what would make this a home run but i actually think a, a question that i would gravitate more towards is if you have been a podcast guest before what has made for the the greatest conversations you've had 
right? And uh, I think that gives me a clue into how I how I can show up to provide the the best possible experience for for someone who's joining my show. So I'm I'm appreciating that. Yeah, and I, well, I should say for, for listeners, I think that that I asked that question because as a host, I once got asked it. You know, and this is how I tend to learn, right? It's like, oh, it was great that I got asked that question by a mutual friend of ours, Toku McCree, and he asked me it. And then we did create an amazing episode together. And then once you've done that, you know, I do the same thing in my coaching. Once you try something once and it works really well, you wait for the moments to try it again. Um, and I think it's a really interesting, you know, we're thinking about, we're talking about an art form here that is quite new, podcasting. And, um, mm-hmm. One of my thoughts about it, I think this is a sort of original thought. I'm always interested in those ones because so many of my, so much of my work is often about taking ideas from other people and combining them or resharing them in, with my own flavor. But I had this idea that what podcasting lets us do is be part of more of the kinds of conversations that we wish we had in our lives. Mm-hmm. And that can be true, whether it's like, you know, ridiculous conversations about football on soccer in my case, but it could be any football, you know, on, on, on the one hand, or deep, meaningful conversations of connection on the other hand the kind that you're just talking about that most people many people are starving for really in their lives and you know if you get to tune in for a couple of hours to like i have been delighted to do to you talking to your dad or you talking to another mutual friend joel monk you know for two hours like there's a feeling that comes from that and to do that at the start of your day for 30 minutes you know that's if you're if your whole day is is absent of that kind of attunement and connection and the beauty of those moments that can be, which for many of us, our days can be, then what a gift that is. And so, yeah, it does feel like that's what's possible in podcasting. Mm. And then we have this interesting balance, don't we? I'm just kind of catching it. I'm remembering not the exact podcast that I was on, but I'm remembering one where somebody did have like almost like a standard set of questions that they asked all their guests and and that could be, and in some cases was a kind of like robotic interview, right? It's like what almost why do I need the interviewer here? You could just send me these and I can like answer them to my phone in a video and then we've done it. And uh-huh. there were some a bit like that. Maybe one or two maybe. But there were also people who, you know, took that as the starting point, the structure, the equivalent of um you doing some research or me doing some research for, for one of my interviews on on my show um takes that structure and the structure then creates the space for the other stuff to happen and you know i don't mind having people having questions that they always come back to on shows as a listener it's quite fun like because you kind of know what's mm-hmm. coming and it's always funny when guests do or don't know that those questions are coming if you know and all that kind of thing but for me aliveness is important right in this thing that we've been talking about it sounds like it is for you about what makes these things mm-hmm. uh, meaningful so there has to be some level of aliveness i think mm. not to linger on this too long but we we've got plenty of time ahead of us so i'm i'm curious to hear because i i don't think i've actually thought too much about the format of my show and of your show the the doing 90 minutes to 120 minutes as the as the container, if you will, that that allows for the, these alive conversations to emerge. And there's, I've done episodes that are closer to an hour. I've gone a little over two hours, but I, I think maybe another ingredient of my favorite shows is that they they're typically in the even a little more than ninety. They're they're typically in the hour forty to 
two hour range. And I, I wonder, what do you think it is about that time frame that, that is such a good container? Because I know like really there are great podcasters like Tim Ferriss and Andrew Huberman, who they sometimes go three and a half plus hours. And I find like, whoa, that's actually a little more than what I'm looking for here. And the ones that are 45 minutes or even 50 to an hour, like I, I find myself wanting a little bit more sometimes. So I'm a, what, what do you think it is about that container, the, the container that you and I both are creating with our shows? Yeah, I, I think there's a, there's a few things that come to mind. So um, one is, um, I think that it allows, so, so for me, the difference between an hour and 40 and 40 um, as a podcast length is that um, an hour and 40 just allows for exploration, like real exploration. It allows for a 20-minute tangent which is a part mm-hmm. of aliveness and 40 minutes doesn't. And that's fine, but it is what it is, right? Like don't, don't expect really alive conversations. If, if both you, the host and me, the guest know that if we're going to talk about, you know, I'm not sure we don't know what we're going to talk about today. And that's like in some ways, and that's beautiful, but you know, on the podcast challenge, everyone knows that we're going to talk about my books, right? We're going to have to say something about who I am because otherwise, why are people listening? Um, and by, honestly, by the time you've done that, that's 40 minutes. So there's really no time to, um, to do any kind of tangent there, really. If you do an hour, you've got time for two more questions, really, if, if they're alive questions. In an hour and 40, you've got time to do all that, which does matter and often matters to the guests. And then you've got time for a lot more exploration. And I, I've heard Tim Ferriss say that the reason that that what he thinks happens is, you know, you, you need the first hour to get through the stuff that everyone always says about themselves and their work. And only when they've done that can they relax and say the new things. Mm. And that's not always true, but, you know, I know that the people at Ferris interviews, they've often done, and I've had this a little bit, when you interview somebody who's been interviewed a hundred times or a thousand times um, about the same kind of things, there is more of their, their stuff that they kind of always say. Yes. And then you need to you need to have space to get to the next thing. I, now, having said that about Tim Ferriss, I think that's changed over the course of fifteen years or however long he's been doing it. The the interesting thing is, I think you know, if I think back to I haven't listened to many, but I've listened to a couple of Tim Ferriss episodes that are really long. I think there's something about when you get to three hours that actually it's hard, really hard to hold the whole thing in your being. You know, mm-hmm. so you're doing more letting go of content, which is like okay, but. And you're doing less, okay, I really have this sense of what that conversation between Mike and Robbie was like and what it was about. Whereas if you've got, the, you know, if you've got a three and a half hour one, if I'm listening, as I often do in like 30 minute segments, like three and a half hours is twice as many 30 minute segments, which probably means like instead of listening over two days or three days, I'm listening over four days or six days. And that, again, I just think that's quite a lot to mm-hmm a lot to hold but i don't have anything against that i do sometimes listen to those things that if, if you've ever listened to um there's a podcast called it's called hardcore history which is like this guy yeah. called dan carlin like yeah and they're like each episode is like is always three or four hours and i haven't listened to that much of it because it's so long but it's but it doesn't stop me listening right it's just a different kind of a different kind of art really but yeah i love yeah. this i love this length of conversation i also think personally so the reason I make episodes like that is because I like listening to them. But also I have like a mm-hmm. <laughs> part of my psychological makeup is that I hang on to endings too long. 
So like, I'm always the person who is like the last, <laughs> per, you know, after an, I don't, I don't do nights out anymore because I've got two young children, but at the end of a night out, I'd always be the person on the corner at the end, having the last conversation with the last person when everyone else has gone home. You could map this all across my life. So I get really anxious actually, like a bit like, and dissatisfied with a, when I've had to do a tighter episode because I just know there's more to do and it doesn't let my bit that likes to hang on to endings. You know, I always say to guests actually, yeah, it'll, it'll sometime between 90 minutes and two hours, there'll be a natural point that feels like the ending. It's always at one hour, 59, 59 that I go, yeah, time to end now, right? <laughs> because, because there's so much more we could talk about and I want to get that last bit of juice out of the, the time I have with somebody. Yeah. Thanks for thanks for dissecting it like that. And you know, what when I'm in touch with you, you were sharing in the beginning about how we initially connected. I was gearing up to interview Joel Monk, who's the the founder of Coaches Rising, and I interviewed him back in February. And when I I mean, he's someone who hosts a great podcast and has been a guest on a bunch of different podcasts. And what what did I filter for when I was researching Joel Monk and other podcasts. I wanted to listen to the longest one that he's been on. <laughs> and if my memory glad serves to hear, me glad to hear correctly, that's me. that was you. And I believe it was two hours and six minutes. And so there's, there's just something I was like, that's the one I want to listen to. I don't want to listen to the one that's an hour and 23 minutes or the one that's 50 minutes. So... Yeah, I can really feel that though, Mike, like when you talk about it like that, because and I know that feeling as well, because it's like, it's not true with everybody that I'm going to listen to a podcast interview with. But if I'm looking somebody up, it's like, if there's one like that, I know that I'm really going to know that person. By the end of it, I'm mm-hmm. going to have I'm going to found a flavor of them, really, no matter the quality of the interviewing, because there's, mm-hmm. there's like time, whereas in a 40 minute one, I don't know that I'm going to get a flavor of somebody. And if I'm looking to listen to somebody, I probably know a bit about their work already. So like sometimes I do, you know, if there's like a book for somebody that I haven't read and I don't want to read it, if you can find a 40 minute interview with them, they'll pick out the most important bits and that's useful. But if I want to get an actual flavor of somebody, then you can listen. If you can find a 90 minute, two hour one, you kind of know that you're going to, mm-hmm. you're going to, you're going to get the, the flavor of somebody from that. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm finding myself curious right now. I, I'll, there, there's a couple of thoughts that are coming up for me and when I started my show, to a certain extent, I still have a very tiny audience, right? Like I didn't start my show with a big following. I don't currently have a big following. One of the pieces of advice I got from people, not just from, you know, random person who's never created anything in their life before, but even, even people who are, have created really great things that have a voice that I would want to listen to. Nine out of 10 people told me, Start with a 30-minute con- or if you do a two-hour interview, release it in four different 30-minute conversations or, or something like that. And I don't know. There was, there was just something in me that said, I don't want to do that. I mean, I, there's, a, there's a way that that can be stubbornness, right? That I'm just ignoring really good advice and, and maybe more people would listen if I broke it into 30, 30, 30, 30. But we've been talking, uh, we've been talking about creation and creativity. And this is, this is something I know that you think a lot about in, in your life. And so I don't know if the threads connect necessarily, but I I think that there was something in me that said, even if there's no audience, that this is what creation feels like for me, right? Like I'm going to create this long form interview. And there's something about the way that Dan Carlin does his, that, you know, he, I'm sure a lot of people told him for four hours talking about 
these random time period, you know, the 1400s, what, you know, whatever was happening in the 1400s. I'm, I'm revealing how little I know about history. But yeah, the only, the only one I've listened of- <laughs> to is about like the, the King of Kings, Darius, the, the like mm. Persian king who tried to invade Greece. Like the incredible detail about this and background. Yeah, like they definitely did. I've heard him say yeah. that, they, that they definitely, people definitely said this won't work for sure to him. Yes. Know? Yeah, so there there's some there's something in here about what do you what do you think makes for really great creation and creativity and and something also about this balance of like when when do you listen to what feels true to you versus trying to meet the marketplace where it is or your audience where where it is. So this is something that I have a really I find myself challenged with this a lot as a creator and as an entrepreneur. Like, do I do I find a niche for myself to make it really obvious what I do? You know, there's there's a lot of noise around this. So I, I I trust your voice about this, and I'm sure you've reflected on it a million times. And yeah, I'll let yeah, you take I, it from here. I have, Mike, and I'll, so I'll, I'll just say some things <laughs> that that kind of try and pull together some of those some of those threads. So. Look, for me, like the first thing that comes up and I've had people say, like when I first launched my, so my podcast for people who don't know is, is called, one of my podcasts is called The Coach's Journey. That's the one we've been talking about with the long format interviews. Mm-hmm. And when I first launched The Coach's Journey podcast, a bunch of people messaged me saying, can you just make some shorter episodes? And I just found this like truly gobsmacking because it's, it's an incredibly limited, like scarcity mindset, right? Mm-hmm. Just pause the thing when you want to pause it and come back and listen later. Like, what is going through that person's mind that they think that they can't do that, that they have to listen to it all in one go? I mean, like, I got compassion for those people, but, but like, it's really strange to me, <laughs> especially as somebody who's been listening to, at this point, two-hour interviews for 10 years probably, and, like, I know how to pause by this point, right? You don't even have to have that. It used to be a real hassle, right? You used to have to download an MP3 onto your phone or MP3 player and then they, the apps didn't work very well. But now Spotify will remember forever where I am in the middle of my, you know, listening to an episode of Mike's Search for Meaning. So I just think that's interesting, right? The other interesting thing about similarly limited thinking to me, when someone says, looking at the podcast market, says, Mike, you should do short episodes. Because Joe Rogan, as I understand it, this is an out-of-date stat now, it's probably way more, got like, gets like 300 million downloads a month. And these conversations are never less than two hours. Never. Like, well, maybe occasionally. Almost never, right? Tim Ferriss, like you said, some of them are three and a half hours long. And he's always in the top 10 podcasts of the type that, that he's in. Like, why would it... Why does that make sense? Like, so that's the first thing, just to, just to really catch that I think that those... I know lots of people say them, but I just think they're quite strange, right? Both of those, both of those attitudes. I'm really glad you made what, what you made because if we zoom out a bit and think, and, and I look at this less from someone who's just interested in how podcasting works and more from somebody who, like you say, has thought a lot about creativity. So my series of books, people who don't know, it's called The 12-Minute Method. It's about how to beat procrastination and be more productive. And, and above all, it's about how to finally do things that you have wanted to do for a long time and not done right how to actually do these things and that's because it was that was my my quest my journey my uh, personal uh, when i say my quest my personal quest like how do i do this thing how do i go from somebody who doesn't who's stuck who isn't doing these things to doing it 
And I've investigated that in a bunch of ways for myself, for clients, that kind of thing. And, and look, the, one of the key ideas is, right, if you're going to make something that matters, you have to keep, you have to make it, right? And if you're wrapped up in, should I do it like this? Should I do it like that? Then that makes it much less likely that you make it, right? Really, when we're going to make something, especially something that endures over time, my view would be that we need to make it into something that we would make regardless of whether anyone would is listening, right? In the case of podcast reading, in the case of a blog. So make that thing, right? And that also works, right? Because we no longer actually really need to work at, to, to, to corner a market. Like, you know, you, you don't need to be the number one podcast in whatever category of podcasts we would put this one in. You just need to find your audience. And that can be a global mm -hmm. audience. And the best way to find a global audience is to make something that really reflect, reflects the creator and then let the people come to you. Mm -hmm. And that might take a while, mm -hmm. right? And again, this is, it might take a while. And this is why it's important to make the thing that you want to make that actually calls you, that actually brings you alive. Because if it might take a while to find, you know, people say it in different ways, don't they? But I can't remember who it is. Somebody coined the phrase a thousand true fans, right? If, if you, if it might take you a while to find that, 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 that thousand people. So in the meantime, be making a thing that actually brings you alive, not a thing that someone's kind of told you you should make because tactically it's better. Like personally, as a kind of a thinker and a strategist, somebody who can do those things really well. If I spend too long thinking, what should I be, what's the smartest thing to be making here? Then I will never make anything. But if I listen to like, what do I actually want to make here? Or what am I being called to make? Then, then that's really different. And so you asked, part of your question was, something about uh, what, you know, what makes for great creativity. And I always want to stop people at that point. Like what makes for great creativity is actually creating something. Like it's the most important thing. Worry about great creativity later and create something. Um, and the chances are, if you kind of follow, follow intuition as you do that, that, that you end up making something way better than you thought you would. Yeah. Mm. The be beautiful reflections there. There is something about so there's, there's, we touch a little bit, or you touch a little bit on this. What I imagine is this completionist thing where I, I don't know. I think because it, maybe it's because of the way that we're educated, it, it feels good. There's something about our psyche that it feels better to complete the 30 minute conversation than to leave that, that loop open and just pause it at the same exact spot. Right. And I've, I actually used to do this with books a lot. Like even if I, I would borderline suffer through the book just to say i got it done and and one you know one of the ways to make to safeguard against that is to just have a shorter book right so then i <laughs> if we do this with podcasts like if i have a shorter podcast even if it sucks there's there's something about the way that we're conditioned that says we need to finish this thing we need to just keep going and and not pause it in the middle or pick back up later and and there's also something really obvious about the capability that we have to say, I'm going to choose to pause it right here. This is a good stopping point anyway. And I'll get back to it later when I have another 30 minutes when I'm commuting again or whatever the thing is. Yeah, like, I think there is... Um, we might have a slight lag, Mike. Sorry, I just realized. I know we're coming out of it a little bit. I wonder if that's happening. But let me let me just catch it. One of the things that I think is quite interesting is I originally was going to have my books come out as one book, one really long book. And then somebody gave me, so I want to slow down on this because it reflects on what, what you were just saying. 
Then somebody gave me essentially the same tactical advice. Well, not the same tactical advice, but they gave me the tactical advice. This would work better as a series. And I really rebelled mm. against that until I slowed down and said, you know, because the reason they were saying it works better as a series is this is the reason I'm going to spoil everyone's authors for, favorite authors for them. This is the reason all your favorite authors write series of books, right? Because if somebody buys one and likes it, they're likely to buy the others. So if you're writing mm -hmm. Jack Reacher, right? By the time you've sold them one Jack Reacher book, you've sold them five more. And maybe you've sold them all mm. 25 or however many there are more. I, I don't know. I've actually never read one. But, you know, so they told me this because it was a tactically good thing to do. But I was unwilling to make the decision based on that. What I sat, had to sit down with was, will it serve the people who read these books? Even one, is it, will it potentially serve one person better to have it like this? Because you can make all the things I said about the 30-minute the, the 30 thing, you can, make, you can make that argument the other way, right? You can make the argument that, look, what's your problem, Robbie? Just put them out as four episodes. If somebody wants to listen to all four, they can listen to all four back-to-back. -back. Spotify yeah. will let them do that too. Like, what's, what's, what's the problem? And with my books, it you know, became quite apparent because each book de deals with essentially a different stage of the creative process that it would, could be really advantageous to sell them separately for people because they might mm -hmm. it, it might be that they're that they want help with starting which is that first phase but it might also be that they help want help with not giving up which is the second phase in the second book and if, if that's all they want then just let them come there so it's it's obviously not as not as simple as one way is right yeah. or one way is wrong and it is a tension you know kind of heard, just heard me kind of describe it that, that you mentioned between what do i want to create and where are the people that i want to support and what might they need? Mm -hmm. And to, I think mm -hmm. to be asking those questions, both of them, if you're, as long as you're asking both, then like, like, what does my intuition tell me about what I should be making here? And, and then not, but not abandoning, are there some smart things I can do so that more people get helped by this thing or inspired by this thing that I'm making? It's like a, yes, yeah, yeah. it's, it's not, I don't think it's a, it's not a black and white, is it? No. And what, what I'm hearing, what, what you're pointing to, which I've heard you speak about in, in other appearances, is humility, right? There's a, there's a humility in creation that you don't get to decide necessarily all the factors that, that are going to stand out about the work that you do, right? Like just showing up and doing the thing and doing something that makes you come alive, also being attuned to like, how is my audience responding to this? There is that tension of, Am I creating something that is true to me as a creator that also is meeting, right? Like if I'm, if I'm too in my ego and just being committed to being right, I might miss the chance to serve people that would really be served if I, if I made the simple little change in my format, right? If I just broke it into four books and, and I'm sure your audience has been served by, by your willingness to do that. So yeah, thanks for, thanks for starting this episode with, in a way, a kind of a 30 minute tangent, right? <laughs> and we're exactly. going to, we're, we're, I think we're, we're going against what, what Tim Ferriss's insight was that you, you spend the first hour really getting to know who the person is and, and then going into the depths there. I, I would love to focus a little bit now on, on who you are after we've gotten a flavor for the way that you think. And I, I love the way that you think, but. Let's see, there's, there's dots that have been connected so far that I think are interesting threads to explore. And yeah, there was something, there was a moment 
earlier on that you were you were speaking about a stuckness that you that you had in your life, and I know that you've written a lot of books or not a lot. The the books that you have written have been in some way written for yourself or written through. How do I get through this challenge that I am being presented with in my own life? And can I write the book that serves other people? So something I know about you is that you were homeschooled until you were nine. Going to school and and being put into a traditional education system presented challenges to you. And through theater and acting, you... You started to find yourself in, in a lot of ways that in, in terms of being homeschooled can be lonely and, and isolating, but I think you, you've probably felt more autonomy and freedom in, in your life and less confinement. And when you got thrown into a traditional education system, that was probably the first time that you felt like, oh, what, you know, what's my place in, in this world or, or something like that. And... I'm just, I'm wondering, you know, if, if from my own lens here, one of the ways that, that I've been stuck in my life a lot is that I've had to unlearn this kind of prescriptive path. Like I just, someone dictates the way that my life goes. I, I do what needs to be done. And if I do that, then I will graduate to the next level. And then I'll do that to the next level. And that, that was true in school for me. That was true in college. That was true in, in my early career really until I found coaching that, that I start to really challenge the paradigms that I had been given. And so uh, there's this question, around, I, I kind of rambled my way into this question of, based on everything I've outlaid here, what, are, what influences the way that, that you think and that you look at, at coaching as almost an art form in supporting people to both understand you know, where, where you came from and what influences the way that you think and also as a way to support people in, in their becoming. Because I know that when you drifted and, and felt a little bit stuck in, in your life, you, you eventually found your way into coaching and, and that became really this, this big turning point in your professional life. And, I, and basically, it's like taking the red pill in, in a way, right? That you uh, you never looked back. It's it's almost become your your entire way of being. So, I, I know I threw a lot at you, but you're a capable man, and you'll. Uh, you'll I don't even know where where the answer will go, but I <laughs> I'm really I've got my popcorn ready. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Lots of beautiful stuff in there, Mike, and and yeah, that is a lots of reflections in there that that, that resonate with me and and where I feel like I came from and, and where I am. So, and you know, it's interesting because I think that sometimes, yeah, I, I, sometimes, I think that sometimes in my life, including in some of the conversations you've heard, I put a lot on that that transition into school. Um, and you know, interestingly, I'm still doing my own work and discovering things about myself. And I think that some of that, you know, actually, one of the, some of the things that happened with that were that they they tapped into that that time tapped into earlier parts of my programming and ways of being from earlier in life that you know that happened to just really confront or perhaps in any any difficult time we end up with the same running into the same challenges that we that we often have mm. but but for sure like the influencing the ways that i think right we it does feel like there are these two very clear parts of me that 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 that, that story that you told maps really nicely so there's this intuitive exploratory home educated little boy right so this is like 
zero to nine. Um, and not just home educated anywhere or with anyone, right? But with my particular parents at that particular time in the world with the, you know, they were born in the early fifties. So they kind of grew up in the seventies and, and, or became adults in the seventies. And that in the UK and I, I imagine in the US, it, you know, was a real time, right? A real cultural shift time. Mm-hmm. And they were in that. So they were, they are incredibly exploratory um, people. And they have viewpoints which now are much more common, but at the time were, were I mean, it's still quite unusual in, in lots of parts of, of British society, but, but, but at the time even more so, you know, to, to let my intuition and, and interest guide us most of the time with that education. You know, we didn't mm. just do the school curriculum lesson for lesson, but at, at my house, right? We followed that and they were able to hold presence and inquiry, I'm sure, around little Robbie. And then there's a different system, right? If you're going to educate a lot of children and the education system comes from where our education system came from and originates in the era that it originates. And if you went to it in the, in the mid nineties, like I did, then that's a different environment with a lot of, with adults who were different and children who were different to the adults and children that I'd been around. And so in a way, a second part of me emerges at that point, part of me, an observer part of me. Maybe that part of me has always been there, but maybe my role is to be the witness, right? That's one of the inquiries that I've got at the moment. You know, and that that is certainly a mechanism which served me well in an environment that I understood not at all and found quite frightening and felt very alone in. And what my response was, as I think about it and understand it now, is like, okay, well, let's sit back, let's work out how this this system works, and then I can operate within it. And that included academic learning. I'm sure it included in some ways social interactions, although that took me quite a long time, really, in some respects. And in some respects, you know, I, I did really well with it. And, and then those parts of me are still there, right? But the latter one is the one, speaking to some of the things you said, that is the one that then gets reinforced and rewarded mm-hmm. in an education system like in the UK, right? Can I work out the rules to passing my GCSEs, which is the exams we take when we're 16 in, in, in the UK? Uh, they might have changed their name again by now, actually. I can't remember. But that was, that was what it was called when I did it. Can I work out? That was how I did it, right? Like, let's work out the rules for GCSEs and then let's, pass, let's win this game of exam taking, right? That's not the same. That's not how the zero to nine-year-old me would have, would have approached learning, but it's what was rewarded. So I got good at doing that. I got so good at it that the, the subjects I studied, and again, this is something that we have a little bit in common, were, were subjects that really reward that, like, which I studied, like my favorite subject at, in, in the kind of 16 to 18 education was maths. And so that's what I studied at undergrad level. So I have a bachelor's degree in mathematics, right? And, and what that is in some ways is, what are the various rules and methods that I know to approach this problem? And how can I systematically use them until the problem is solved? And that is a way of being, right? It's in some ways, it's the way of being the, what would you call it? The enlightenment, the post-enlightenment way of being, right? This amazing thing, mm-hmm. the scientific method that has transformed life on our planet. And math is a really pure version of that. Like, let's approach it. Let's use rationality. Let's use logic. And then there's a part of me that wasn't getting used by that. And so to try and pull that together to kind of capture that final part of what you said, which is what brings me to coaching. You know, and how does that fulfill this? Like, I can really hear that. I've never said it in this way before, but I can really hear that in the way I've just told that story, right? That I was looking for in different ways to fit, fit things to myself. And succeeding and failing 
at different times in different measures in the first 10 years or so of my career. And what I found in coaching is something that essentially allows me to use both those parts. So it is useful mm -hmm. to have a set of methodologies and containers to support people. Just like if you're interviewing somebody, it's useful to have a set of, a set of questions or ideas about what you might talk about. But then we need the intuitive part of us to be able to follow things in the moment. And I am, it feels like my work in the first, I've been coaching for about eight years. It feels like a lot of my work. I didn't know this at the start. I thought it would be more, I knew that thinking was the thing I'd been practicing. I wouldn't have called it that, but I knew that I was a thinking person. And I thought it would be about unlocking feeling and emotion. That was going to be the route to coaching mastery to really helping people transform what it actually turned out partly because of some training i did with joel's company actually is that for me the first eight years have been a, have been about intuition instead so in some ways it's been about recovering the not the feelings that might have been what like sucked out of my life as a coping mechanism but the intuition that i had grown to not trust in some ways or or forgotten that existed and mm. so that is what those things come together really beautifully in coaching Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Can you tell, this might seem like it's out of left field, but it was, it was in the conversation that you had with Joel, and it's a beautiful demonstration of, of what intuition and being attuned to the moment looks like. There was, there was a time that you were working with a client, and I don't remember the content, or frankly, the context of, of the session that you were in, but their dog was barking in the background. <laughs> and, and that became... That became something that influenced the way that you were conducting the session and, the, and where you took the, the session and what questions you asked. And so could you, could you tell that story of the dog barking during a, a client session? Yeah. So it reminds me of one of my favorite poems by a woman called Ingrid Goff Madoff. And I don't know anything about her except this born poem. Uh, and the poem is, I always misquote it. I'm going to try and get it exactly as she wrote it. God spoke to me in flowers and I who was waiting on words, nearly missed the conversation. And we can, in our, in our lives, when I say we, most of the time, Mike, I mean me, but I'm, I know by this time that, that I, I mean at least me, and I'm 99% sure somebody else. We can live in a very focused way, and we can stay focused in on the thing that's there at the expense of the signs that may be around us. And one of the things that I learned through a program that Joel and his, his company still run, it has different names, in fact, and I know this because I have a, uh, one of Joel's business partners is my brother. So that's partly how Joel and I know each other. I, I can't remember if we've talked about that. But, mm -hmm. So I know a little bit from the inside about this. The, the, the program that I did that Joel used to run, the first, I did the first year of it, was called Coaching from Source. As far as I know, the conversation, the, 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 the same course is now called The Power of Presence. And that's about them trying to meet the market. But for me, it massively, I haven't said this to them, actually, I haven't thought about it until now, it massively devalues what is actually in there. I mean, really, they're calling it that because they don't, they were calling it coaching from source because how do you, how do you try and talk about uh, God or anything like that when most people live in a really rational world and religion is hugely out of fashion, in some ways for, for very sensible reasons, mm -hmm. you know. So they went for coaching from source and then they've gone the other way. And I wonder if really, you, you know, they should have gone back the different way, which is to like, it's like how to have magic happen in your coaching, like coaching using magic. Because that's what it felt like to me, what I was learning from people on that program, like Katie Hendricks and um, Jim Detmer and, and other people. And part of it was 
work with what's work with everything that happens like everything that happens in these conversations could be the perfect thing to be happening happening in this conversation that random thought that you have this isn't what they were saying and i wouldn't have used the g word as often then and i'm still not sure what i mean by it right but you know what if this random thought that i've had in front of this client is a message from god for this client like that's essentially the the question that that i i felt like that training program was asking me well certainly it's the question that i heard and this really that's really interesting because usually what happens when people come to something like coaching is they have to learn the rules so that they're doing coaching not doing what they're used to doing which is essentially teaching so we're used to helping people by teaching them and telling them what we think and coaching is a different thing it's about you know creating insight through presence and curiosity and great listening and all those kinds of things so usually we're like no don't mention the random thoughts that you have in your head when you're learning to be a coach and this training was the other way it was like let's assume you've learned not to not to mention the random things that come from you but what about the random things that might not be coming from you that might be coming from the client somehow or from some other part of the system that we're in and so i was sat with a client once and i can't remember what what she was talking about or why but i'd got I'd got practiced at it, at like whatever happens in the conversation, what if, and it's not always, but what if it is like meant to happen in this moment? Or what if humans, because we're meaning-making creatures, can make meaning of anything that happens? And we need to at least offer people the chance for that, for the, for the thing that's happening to be a sign, whether it's the internet going down or, you know, I don't know what else it would be, like someone's chair breaking or their dog barking like insistently in a very intrusive way in the call. And so I asked this client, you know, if that's your dog trying to tell you something, what's it trying to tell you? And I, you know, I can't remember what she said. I've got absolutely no idea, to be honest. But I, I just remember this feeling of like depth and profundity because it was like the dog said, like it was like, it was amazing because she could, even if we think about this on a rational level, she was able to do this amazing thing, which is like it project onto her dog both her, like, rem remember her dog's love for her, project an ability to actually speak and kind of in dog almost, not like, like, give, but give it back in a kind of with a, with the spirit of a loving dog, what she needed to hear in the moment in the conversation that we were having. And it, it was meaningful and it, it was, it was insight and it just came from, I mean, it's a, a fundamentally ridiculous question to ask, right? Like, if your dog was trying to tell you something now, what would it be trying to say? But if, if we can hold that. <laughs> with with uh, respect for it as though it could be a message from god then that's then then sometimes not always sometimes the the message is is really powerful hmm. i love that story so much and and it it does in some ways like a, a lot of dots continue to connect in this conversation there's a lot of times we get into coaching because we've been moved by different maps and, and models that have that have really influenced us. And then, you know, we want to we want to teach other people about those maps and models and and frameworks are really, really helpful. And there's there's a next. I don't know if it's a next level because it's not a hierarchy, but there's if if you want to be one of the most masterful coaches in the game. There's something about, how, yes, knowing that there are maps and models that are helpful and that the client's mind might work that way. And it's helpful for them to have frameworks and structures. And there's other, there's other information that's bigger than me and you that is available in, in the conversation at, at any given point. 
And that's a big edge for me. You know, like I, it's a tough skill. We, we, we're not really schooled in that. We're not schooled on how to listen to, to the, the softer, quieter things that are happening in any given moment. And, and with stillness practices, in a lot of ways, that's what we're after is to be in touch with more information than is just made up in, in the rational mind. And there were, there was a part of me that was like looking for the profound, you know, what's, what's in this moment right now that I can ask Robbie in the next question that I, that I do in this interview, there's like, there's a little bit of a lag in his video. And is there a question I can ask about the lag in his video? And it's, <laughs> it's flurrying outside, you know, there's, there's a way that the mind or my mind will like try and hunt for the next thing. But I imagine in, in that moment, you actually weren't, you weren't looking for the, like, what else is happening besides me and this client there? It was just, it was being thrown in your face a little bit, right? The dog was just barking and barking and, and you eventually decided to listen. Yeah. Yeah. My, one of my, my coaches, Miles Downey, he, you know, he says in one of his books, um, coaching is a bit, there's something someone once said about acting. There are no rules, but you have to know them. And coaching is a bit like that is, mm -hmm. what, is what Miles says in, in, in his book. And there's a good example of that. Like, you know, because there are no rules, right? You can ask a question about the dog, but you've got to know the rules. And one of the rules of coaching, one of the things is to be as present with the person as you possibly can. So I, I love what you just said there. And I've done that as well. It's like, as soon as I'm going, what's the cool question I could ask? Or what's happening in the world for me or the client that I could ask them about to bring this to life? We're not present, right? But if presence is broken by the dog barking, like that's one of the, like, that's like a, you know, it's like, that could be the time to break the rules. Breaking the rules, another, another great thing that the somewhat controversial Canadian psychologist Jordan Peterson says about rules. He says, the best time to break a rule is when breaking the rule is more in the spirit of the rule than following the rule. So breaking the rule is more in the spirit of the rule than following the rule. So to do that means you have to really understand the rule. But if you understand the reason for not throwing every thought you have in your mind, into the conversation and staying present, then you're in a place where when the right thought comes in, you can go like, oh, hang on a sec. This is something more than just a random thought I have. It might be in more service of this client, in this case, this, this amazing woman in front of me, to, share, to, to ask them the question about the dog than it is to kind of do the textbook thing. And again, we can think about, you know, in a way, the, the conversation we had about podcasting, the textbook thing will soon be a thing, if it isn't already, that an AI algorithm can do, right? Because it can read the textbook and then do exactly what the textbook would say to do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's not, sometimes that's enough. And sometimes there's more magic available to us, I guess is, is what I believe from having been doing this for this kind of thing for eight, eight years or so. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's such a good point. It's such a good point. There's a textbook or a, an AI a robot could if you if you do the mechanical way of things could replicate a lot of what's possible in a coaching session but yeah actually my, um, another friend of mine claire pedrick has written a couple of great great books about coaching she says that sometimes she'll she does assessments for the international coach federations um credentialing and she'll sometimes read a transcript of that conversation and find that it hasn't passed i can't remember if this was at the 
the, the top level. And we could talk about credentialing. And as a, someone who was, came, out, came from outside of the education system into it, I, I think most credentials and exams are a bit pointless, but the learning behind them can be really useful. And sometimes it, it's useful to have the qualifications if the world you're in requires the qualifications. Anyway, that's aside, really. What Claire says is interesting is you sometimes read a transcript that has of a, of a and it's a textbook transcript. And yet it's failed the exam. It hasn't passed a human listening to it and knowing, do they meet these criteria? Even though it looks like it should have met the criteria, it hasn't. And then when you listen to it, you know why. And it's exactly this thing we're talking about. It's that the artfulness, as Claire and her co-author Lucia Baldelli would put it in one of their books, the artfulness is not present. The artful coaching is not happening. It doesn't mean it's not good or useful, but something that's possible is, is not happening in that conversation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, to reflect back on the quote that you have about rules, which I love, there are no rules, but you have to know them. You could look at this as a, as a life philosophy too. And, and on, your, on your website, it says something along the lines of most people follow the rules. Some people break the rules. But for the most part, what is the last? I'm forgetting the punchline. It's like, the, the truth most is, part, most, most rules don't rules. even exist. Yeah, most rules don't even exist. Yeah. So I'm I'm curious. I mean, you seem you're you're a very thoughtful person, and at being in the coaching game for eight years, you're in in a lot of ways you're playing by your own rules. And I would I would love to parse through the rules that you play by right now in your life or maybe conditions that you create in your life and and how you set those conditions which also in a lot of ways i'm sure informs the way that you serve your clients and that you yeah you know, look like look at what's most important in in your life yeah yeah so i mean let's like there's maybe there's so many ways we could go from that mike and so maybe like uh let's like you you guide us in it if you if you have intuitions but i think that the kind of important idea at the top of that which i don't think i necessarily had when when that page was created but is is feels very pertinent is it is one of the big i think it's one of the big shifts that people go through in their lives as they try to make sense of the world and i'm one of my inspirations is a woman called jennifer garveyberger and she mm. is a part of the Coaches Rising faculty for one of their programs that they've, they've run many times um, called The Art of Developmental Coaching. And, and she worked very closely with Robert Keegan, who founded one of the developmental models for adult psychological development. And this is like a lot of jargon that people can just skip through if, they, if they're not interested, but people might like this, this grounding. And so this is the idea that you can group the, the way people take perspective on the world, the way they see the world into some stages and that as we grow and develop, if the world challenges us, we develop new ways of seeing it. And Jennifer's work is amazing because it takes a very complex field and makes it simple. That's one of her, or, or simpler, manageable for me, particularly in her most recent two books, Unlocking Leadership Mind Traps and Unleashing Your Complexity Genius. They are really, they don't have any of the theory and they just have the practice of like, how do you deal with the complexity of the world? But one of the key shifts that we go through as an adult often is between what, what Keegan and Garveyberger called the socialized mind, which is essentially, and I had, it's funny, I had Garveyberger on my podcast and was able to say to her, this is how I think it is, Jennifer. This is how I'm teaching adult development to people. Is it right? And she said, yes. So that was a great relief for me, which is essentially the socialized mind is 
I take the rules that I am picking up from society of, you know, of how to be a good person, and I, I follow those rules. And the problem we have is that used to work in a simpler time. Probably 100 years ago it worked, maybe 50, 60 years ago it worked. The last 20 years it doesn't, it doesn't work. And, and that's because you end up with a bunch, of, a bunch of ways that you're trying to be a good person. I'm trying to be, you know, I'm trying to be a good dad. I'm trying to be a good coach. I'm trying to be a good husband. I'm trying to be a good son. I'm trying to be a good brother. I'm trying to be a good friend. I'm trying to be a good citizen. I'm trying to be a good adventurer in the world. That's just eight, and we could probably do eight more if we really slowed down with it. And the problem with that is they contradict each other. Those eight, those eight good things contradict each other. I mean, the, the really striking one that Jennifer and I talk about in the interview on the coach's journey is we talk about women and you know, the, how do I be a good mother and a good woman in the 21st century who has a career? And even if you just have those two, let alone, and Jennifer says, you know, she also has, because she's a researcher, she also has, how do I be a good researcher? You know, you don't, you don't need many, but like, how do you add in? How do you square that circle? You know, I know that you're in this as well because you've got a, a little boy. I'm in this. We've just had our second daughter. I'm watching my wife trying to square that circle, and it's all, it's almost impossible. I mean, it is impossible, right? It, it, at the point where it is impossible, that's when we're asked for something new, and this is when the most rules don't even exist comes in. So we we have most people follow the rules. That's when you're just trying to trying to be a good person in all those different ways. Some people break the rules. We rebel. We just go the other way. We say, you know, and that's not, you know, and that's, 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 that's a good thing to do. Like a, having rule breakers, that's the 70s, right? That's what my mum and dad were doing by homeschooling. It's like, no, the schooling system is broken. And Robbie doesn't want to go to school. And we can do something different about that. And that's amazing. And, and somewhere really close to that and closely related is the rules don't actually exist. Right, so we're not breaking the rules for the sake of them. There are no rules. There's just all this like agreed sense of reality about how things work and mm. that everyone goes to school. And we don't live in that reality as much as we used to. But but in in North Yorkshire, rural North Yorkshire where I grew up, no one else broke the rules in the way that my family did. Like my mum and dad weren't married at that point. I had different surnames. I had a different surname to them, you know, until my mum changed her name. We talked about this. Like, I grew up in a, an environment where I, it was very clear to me that the rules that most people think exist don't exist. But like you don't have to follow them in that way. But what we might get to, if we're confronted by reality, and this is not a fun process, right? It's not a fun process to realize that you can't be a good person in the way you've been trying to do it and that you're going to have to create a new way to see the world. This is like dark days right, happen when, when you're confronted with this, when your, your kind of worldview breaks. And often it's like there's something that happens. It's just like, this, I can't, you know, I can't believe in it anymore because, because this thing is proved, go back to maths, it's like proof by, I can't really call it, exception, right? Oh, it just doesn't work anymore, right? I can't see it like that, but that's like a scary moment. But the stage that comes next is um, what, what, what um, Keegan or Garvey Berger would call self, the self-authored mind. And that is where instead of, I'm going to try and be a good person in all these ways society tells me, we get to, I'm going to choose how I am going, what a good person is for me. And we could talk about the stage beyond that, because that's interesting too. But for me, that's been, you know, that in some ways, the, the thing that broke for me was how I was trying to do my career at the same time as a relationship that I was in broke down. It's like, oh, this stuff, like, obviously I'm not seeing everything because if I am, this wouldn't have all happened. And so in a way, the last, I mean, it's more like 10 or 11 years now for me has been 
the attempt to play with creating life, self-authoring life. And then it has mixtures of mm -hmm. other things in there. And we could talk about what that looks like and what it means, but I'm going to pause because this is quite a long answer to a question. Like, <laughs> no, I, I wanted you to keep going. So I would love to know like, now that we, you know, you, you've kind of, you've given a really great map that has been approved by Jennifer Garvey Berger herself. I don't know if that's exactly how you articulated it in the episode, right. but that's a, that's a, it's actually, I didn't feel like it was overly verbose. I felt like it was a pretty succinct summation of the, the socialized mind. There's, there's a prescribed way to follow the rules and probably learned it from society, parents, institutions, right? Like there's, there's all these different things about what it means to be a good person and here's the way to do it and go out there and do it. And in the transition, most adults are, many might ignore this, but most adults at some point feel called to, including myself, wait a second, what, whose life am I living here, right? Like, what am I, what am I doing with my life? I, I don't feel like I've really chosen this, this path that I'm on. And that, yes, scary, but also eventually, hopefully, really empowering time or shift in our lives into self-authored, which maybe I will add here, they are not hierarchical linear steps, right? Like there's, there's certain factors that we're kind of always on the scale of, you know, I might want to say something and there are certain societal conditions that might happen where I will, I under no circumstances will say that. And it's, it's helpful to have the, the socialized mind there where, you know, I will adhere to I'm not going to run outside naked right now because I, I know the consequences of that. Even if there's a part of me that thinks that would be really fun or that I'll get a full body sunlight exposure to, to that. And that's healthy for me. There's like, I, I know that there's harm that can be done for me doing that. And so I guess I just wanted to throw that in there. They're not linear stages, but a lot of us as adults, we get to a point where we, we don't feel like we have any self-authorship or or agency or that we haven't chosen our life at all. And it's a very, very important skill to acquire if you are to live a life that you not even are in love with, that has any sort of alignment, right? There's going to be a lot of dissonance if you're not doing that. And so as you've started to be more intentional about creating the life and, and the set of rules that you live by, and maybe Maybe it's not rules necessarily, but just certain things that you're you're looking to, or maybe questions you orient yourself towards. Just like what what are the ways that you have set up your life for for the most success for you? Like you were you were mentioning, I forget if it was before we recorded or started recording or after, but you you take Mondays to be with your family, right? Like that's that's in for a lot of people, it's a radical move to just say, oh, I, I'm going to build a business where I take off this Monday or take off a full month of the year. So I guess like, what are, what are some things that you've created in your life that under the socialized paradigm would never be possible but that you have been intentional about creating? Yeah. So it's a great catch about to, when you, you, you label that stuff about the socialized and self-authored minds look like any model that's an approximation. It's not like, it's not a diagnostic tool and one is not necessarily better than the other. And if we hadn't had the socialized mind, none of human society exists. That would be, uh, that's kind of what Jennifer said when I spoke to her. It makes total sense, right? We wouldn't be able to co cooperate if we were, you know, pissing people off so much by doing weird stuff all the time. Um, so that's all really important. Yeah. So look, I, what I, one of the things I heard in that question, Mike, is, I mean, yeah, so there are really practical things. Like one is, and, and they are kind of, they aren't all from me 
sitting, or maybe none of them are from me sitting and actively self-authoring. I mean, some of them are, but some of this stuff just just comes in. And, and there are practical things like like only working four days a week. And it's like, you know, I have a, I don't know if they were inspired by me. They might have been. I'd like to think they were. Like one of the companies I, I've done a lot of work with is a creativity company in the UK and called 64 Million Artists. And um, Joe Hunter, their CEO, has been getting a lot of press lately because they shut down the company in August and they work a four-day week, but pay people the salaries for a five-day job. And they think, and this is what I discovered, like, you know, I looked at that, that, that idea of working four days and I said, well, it's certainly not obvious to me that I shouldn't be able to create just as much value and um, just as much money for myself working four days as five days. It's not obvious that more is always better. Like, that's a, that's a story that, that socialized mind in the UK at least and I think the US would would teach people and it's just not you know the complexity of the world if you slow down with it enough shows that it's false it's not always true it's not always false but it's too simple for the complexity of the world so there are all these ways this shows up it can be in practical ways like I'm going to work four days and I'm going to do that based on this assumption that most people don't have that I can create just as much value and money for myself in four days as I can in five, maybe even more. And certainly my, my, my most successful years in my business have come since I've gone to four days. Now, also I've been in business longer, so you know, I, can't, I can't point to causality there. And then there are also these kind of like, kind of self-authored belief systems, which are things like, if we think about the 12 minute method, the, the things I was speaking about before, it's better to make the thing than be locked in reasons to make it speech marks better that end up with me not making it. Better to just leap. And I borrowed a load of that from the work of Stephen Pressfield, huge inspiration for me. You know, you can just, that's what those, those kind of books, the kind of speech marks self-help books can do, right? They can give you a new set of assumptions and rules through which you can see the world, which make, which make the whole world look different. But I want to catch because what, so that, that, that gives some sense of it. But the thing that, one of the things that came to mind is one of the ways that I now do this is to think about the arc of life. So to think about, and this, this goes to the, the four day thing and the time. So on the, on the, so I've been doing that. I think it was before we switched on. So let me say it again. I've been doing that since Leah was born, my first daughter. I finished my paternity leave. I'd had to shut the business down basically for a month to, to have a month off. And I was like, well, maybe now's the time. Like, it's never been my end game to work five days. I've shut the business down. Maybe now's the time. I've got a really good reason to take an extra day off. Um, now's the time to do it. But part of that comes from thinking about my own mortality. So inspired by lots of people, including Fred Kaufman and David Trelevin, people can look them up. Um, but many more people than that. You know, we have this, you know, we have this truth. That and in fact, it's fun, so funny. Unconnected to me, Jennifer in that interview that I was just talking about talked about this as well. That the only certainty we had have in a complex world is that one day we'll die. Mm. That's what we've got. We know nothing else about what will happen. And knowing that doesn't doesn't mean that it doesn't really change the unpredictability of the world. But it is a more accurate worldview than one where we pretend that is never going to happen. Which is kind of what the socialized mind teaches us to do society in the uk we never talk about death we have all these other ways of saying dead like passed away passed on uh, just passed you know but there are you know no longer with us there's all these ways like yeah you know we're gonna die and and then 
what we can do though is is think about that. Um, in in his in Kaufman, Kaufman has a great book called The Meaning Revolution: The Power of Transcendent Leadership. He has a chapter in it called "Die Before You Die," which is a so die before you mm. die so that you can truly live. I think is a Zen saying, but I'm very happy in that book because he he quotes Braveheart, the movie, and and in that book, you know, Mel Gibson's character, he says, "Every man dies, but not every man lives." And this is the, this is the thing we have, and so this is the, the what we have available to us. Right? Do we kind of do, you know we're all going to die, but are we going to live while we're here? And are we going to think about that? And what you know, again, one of the things that I think the kind of countercultural way I was brought up, a mindset that my parents brought in is you don't have to do the stuff that society says. And if we can slow down and think about what we really want, and know that we're going to die one day, and it might be soon. You know, one of the exercises Kaufman does apparently with his with people in his workshops is he says to them, you know, if you only had three minutes left to live, who would you call and what would you say? And he says that what happens in the next break in his workshop is like incredible to watch because everybody makes the call, right? Because everybody picks up, knows from that, that, you know, when we have three minutes left to live, we won't know. Like we might not know, we might know, but almost no one knows they've got three minutes left. And so we might not, or we might not have a phone to hand, or the person we might want to call might not pick up. So with that frame, suddenly you're inviting people into like a like real aliveness. Like mm -hmm. um, I love the fantasy author David Gemmell, and he writes about this too. And I can't remember the exact quote, but one of his characters at some point says, "I think it's in his first book actually." It's the character Druss says to these soldiers that are going to face down a, an impossible, unbeatable army in a fortress that's undermanned. It's a bit like the Alamo or something like that. You know, he says, "You think life is sweet now." But when death is heartbeats away, there's, there'll be nothing sweeter. And that, that experiment from Kaufman conjures that up, right? Like I wrote an article about this once and, you know, I always try and if I'm going to ask people to do an exercise, I always try and do the exercise myself first if I'm going to do a workshop. Like otherwise, there's integrity gap, really. And I realized everything else in this article about this idea of dying before you die, I'd done. But that one I hadn't done. So I sat down and I thought, and then I called Emma, who's my wife. And, uh, you know, Mike, it was, it's a surreal moment that, you know, I can remember it almost as though it was, the, you know, the, the moments before I died. It's so clear because she was at work on her, she picked up, which is a bit little unusual. And she was on her way to her yoga class in her lunch break. So work ran some yoga classes. And I couldn't bring myself to tell her why I was calling. You know, I'm feeling it now, like, because I didn't want to, you know, in the same way you can imagine. You know, you get it in films where, you know, the, the guy's flying the, the nuclear warhead into the sun or something to save the world. And it happens in real life. This is amazing. They've actually got this audio of like one of the biggest, I can't remember the name, one of the biggest disasters on Everest where the most people died at once. They actually, the guy, the, the leader of that, who in some ways, you know, causes the disaster. There's a great bit about this in a, in a book called Rebel Ideas by Matt Syed. You know, he, they can patch him through to his wife in New Zealand who's pregnant. And you can listen to this call and you could, like, it felt like that, right? You know, in that call, he doesn't tell her that he's about to die, right? Which I don't know if that was the right thing to do, this, this guy calling his wife from Everest, because he can't bring himself to do it because of what she's doing. But I know a bit what that's like because I couldn't bring myself to even say to Emma, I'm doing this experiment. I'm doing this exercise where I thought about what if I only had three minutes left? Because that's going to, like, she's going to her yoga. I don't want to put that on her. She can just have her, like, she, mm. so I just, so I have this conversation where I just say, I just wanted to call to say I love you. And I've got it with, like, tears pouring down, silently pouring down my cheeks. But, like, 
what a moment of aliveness that is gifted to us. And I don't know if she, actually, I don't know if I've ever, if I've ever said this to her. She's probably read it because it's in one of my books. But I don't know that we've ever talked about it. But I would have thought she will have picked up the aliveness, like the, the desperation to explain, really explain what's meaningful to her. That she will have picked that up even without that. So we have ways like that to experiment, to really remember what actually matters to us. We can play that kind of game. We can write the eulogy that we'd like to be given at our funeral and who would like to give it to us. Or one of the most enlivening ones is one I learned from David Trelevin and then made my own. So it's a bit like the thing you know we were talking about before. You take a thing, like the question about the podcast, and then you make it your own and you use it. And in an interview with Joel, again, to connect lots of, to have lots of things sparking off each other, on the Coach's Rising podcast, David Trelevin talked about creating a commitment for his clients by asking the question, what would make you sad at the end of your life? And what I often do with my clients now and sometimes with myself is I ask that question, but I don't just ask it once. It's like, and what else? And what else? And what else? And what else? And then you create this, you have this list. I'd be sad if, you know, and I'd be sad if this had happened and hadn't happened. And then what you do, and this is the Trelevin move that I stole from him straight on that podcast, is you then turn it into a commitment in the language. And this is important. I am a commitment to, and then it's the reverse of that. So for example, and this, like, if you've ever done this, Mike, before, if you do it again now, if you haven't done it since Nathan was born, then like it changes. Like mine changed a lot after Leah was born, right? You know, but you can imagine like one of mine is, would be, I'd be sad at the end of my life if I hadn't been there for Leah in the important moments of her life. And that then becomes, I am a commitment to being there for Leah in the important moments of her life. And the language, people can try this, you can try this at home. Like, um, if you try, people always want to rearrange that language to something that is a bit more grammatically normal, like I am committed to, or I have a commitment to. But that language, if you try it, is really important. I am a commitment to brings all of that thing that could be a long way away, right into the present, into the body, into the self, in this moment. And if I am a commitment to being there with Leah, in the important moments in her life, then what does that mean for me today? And what does that mean for me this week? And what does it mean for me this year? And it means that I'm there on her birthday, right? And it means that, you know, you know, I guess it's not quite the same commitment. You know, there would be another one, which is like, you know, I'd be really sad at the end of my life if my daughters felt like they hadn't had enough time with me, or I felt like I hadn't had enough time with them. And from that, we get a really easy, well, it's, it's actually, that's actually a thing I can solve for now. So that frame, what might I regret? Or what might me in 10 years, here's another one that I have that comes out of the 12-minute method stuff. It's like, and, and then I'll pause for breath. The frame that comes out of the 12-minute method, which is subtly different, but it, and, a, and a, if people aren't, aren't so up for facing mortality, you can just play with this one. You know, what will me of five years time or me of 10 years time really be glad that I've been doing a bit of regularly for the last five or 10 years? And, you know, when, when I look back, like me of five years time is going to be so glad that I had these days with Leah, no matter how hard they were when she was like nine months old and you kind of desperately trying to get the right number of naps in the day and get her to eat something and get her home for the breastfeeding <laughs> at the right time or whatever, whatever the thing is, or just like stay sane as an adult with this strange little creature, you know, I will never, never in my life regret those days with her, right? And, and that frame, you know, will I regret this thing? Or will I not? That's an incredible frame for creating your own life. 
Mm-hmm. Wow. What a beautiful and moving share on, on so many levels, man. So thank you. Thank you for bringing that to me. And yeah, that this, this question of like, if you had three minutes left to live, who would you call? I, it was bringing up this, this example in, in my own life. It wasn't quite framed the same way. I was in a course and the, the coach that was facilitating this course asked as a prompt question, right in the beginning of the course, which kind of hit me like a, a ton of bricks. When was a moment in your life where you felt truly loved and seen? And this doesn't have to confront mortality in any way, but it, it kind of, in a way, to me, it, it backs into the same thing. It, it's, a, it's almost a way of what is most important to you. Like when, when did you feel most connected and loved in your life? And I remember, <laughs> much like you, you know, this was during, during COVID, work from home, you know, boundaries are all super blurry. And I, I don't remember exactly what my wife was doing at the time, but I just went out in, in tears. I, I just, like, I, I don't even remember what the moment was, but I was so moved by even taking the time to connect with that moment that I was in tears. And it, it also had me connecting with a, a time, this part I remember very vividly, there was a time I took my wife to her favorite concert or her favorite band, churches. And it was right after we got engaged. And I've, I know, I, not to make excuses, I was, at a, I was at a point in my life where I just, I felt outside of my impending marriage and my relationship, I was just professionally was really, really having a hard time. And it was after a tough day at work. But I just remember, a be, it was the, the entire time at that concert, my wife was so excited to be there. And, and I was suffering through it, really. Like, I, I just, it was very visible that I was not, that did not want to be there, wasn't happy about being there. And it, it really took away from my wife's experience. And for some reason, when I connected with what mattered most to me and when I felt most loved, that, that it came pouring out of me just how much I regretted my, the way I showed up to that and how I, how yeah, I, I made a commitment that I, if I'm taking you somewhere that is meant to bring great joy in your life, like I am, I'm just so sorry that that's where I was that, that day, that moment, that point in my life. And, you know, these types of questions really help us to, to get right to the heart of what, what matters most to us, which is not at all what I thought was going to come up when I, when I asked you about creating the, the rules that you live by in your life. But as soon as you started talking, I, I started to get in touch with not just the, pra- we started with the practical, but I, and, and I think practical rules are really, really helpful. Like I, for the most part, don't look at my phone for the first or last hour of the day, unless it's to do like a YouTube breathing guided exercise or something like that. You know, like I, I don't do text before and after and like those practical things are really, really helpful. But there's also a deeper way in which the, the rules can be something as simple as I have a choice in how I'm going to respond to anything that happens in my life. Right. Yeah. yeah and absolutely. And I've I, a lot. A lot of the coaching that has been most beneficial for me has not been the making really clear, bright lines rules that that help me practically, but more how do I show up to life, no matter what is happening in my life. 
And those are like, those are really transformative rules to, to have in your life. Like, I choose to look for the lessons that life is presenting me no matter what's happening in my life or something like that. Is That's a rule. <laughs> that's a great rule. So, yeah, I just like, really appreciate the depth and richness of your response there. Yeah, and, and look, those practical rules, they're really useful. And you can use the same frame. Like, at the end of your life, are you going to be glad that you spent like 30 minutes a day scrolling YouTube or Instagram? Or are you going to be glad that you had 30 minutes a day more with this little boy who's like exploded into your life? And, you know, we can, we can play the whole, the whole thing that way, really. I think when you've got children, it's, it's like extra jeopardy somehow because mortality becomes more real. Mm-hmm. But it's present for everybody. And, and what I heard in that, thanks for sharing that story about the concert, I can really kind of like, you know, feel my own versions of that and what it, it, it because it had come just after. And I don't know if this is quite what you were saying. But one of the things, again, it was, it's, I think it's in The Meaning Revolution, the Fred Kaufman book. You know, he talks about going into all of his coaching sessions, I think, you know, really living that rule. Like, what if this is the last time I ever get to mm, speak mm. to this person? And I mean, we don't want to say this. I don't even, I don't even want to say this, Mike, it feels so much. But like, imagine if that had been the last time you'd ever had with her, because mm-hmm, sometime mm-hmm. it will be. And we, if we're not careful, we let all these things run our life. All these like, and they're not that they're not real, right? Not that you weren't having a shit day and at a you know professional impasse and all these things, but you know we get we do have some choice in this, and you know it that people often think that that kind of considering death is a, is a morbid exercise, and separate to that is it can be a lot for people to do, like a lot if they're not practiced at thinking about that, you know. It can be a big thing. But for me, it's not a morbid exercise, right? The morbid thing is not paying any attention to that until someone's dead, right? Like whether it's you or your, uh, you know, or me or my dad or whoever it might be. And what considering it does usually is connects us to aliveness, connects us to what really matters and enables us to go like, yeah, look, like, I don't remember that, that Friday. I remember it was a Friday when I called Emma and she was on her way to yoga. Like, I don't remember, you know, but we probably that morning <laughs> been doing the things that we sometimes, you know, for all I know, we've been doing the things that we do in mornings, which is like snap at each other a bit sometimes and, you know, whatever it might have been. And, and you can let that stuff stay or, you know, you can remember what actually matters and what actually matters is we, you know, we get to have this conversation. And you, know, you don't want that stuff, you know, you don't, you don't want to spend too much time considering like in some ways, like some part of me still thinks I don't want to spend too much time considering this could be the last time because you can get lost in that and lost in the panic as well. Yes. But, I, but I think that it, most of the time it takes us out of our ego. Uh, it takes me out of my ego. It takes me out of my fear. It takes me out of my taking my life too seriously. And it reminds me of what's important mm-hmm. um, to just go, okay, what if this is the last podcast interview I ever do? What if this is the last session I have with this client? What if this is the last time that I get to play with, with Leah? And, you know, God forbid that it is. And we all know somebody for whom something like that was. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. And yes, the, I think anything can be overdone. And if, so if your entire life is, you know, like a, a desperate last second of plea for like, what am I going to do if I only have three minutes to live, then that can probably be its own challenge. But my experience is that 
most of us aren't aren't considering it at all. And and so asking the question, it might be the first time either ever or in a very long time that we have slowed down enough to consider what's the most important thing for us to do in, in this given moment. And so it's a it's a beautiful invitation. And I'm finding myself drawn now, Robbie, to to talk about honor because one of the thing the through lines of the prep questions that you answered, it was it was all about leadership with honor. And I've seen you do the the, the episode that you did with with Toku was sales with honor. And honor just feels like something that's really important in, in your life. So I, I'm just wondering if you are a commitment to honor, which I, I'm guessing in some way you've written that down somewhere and encoded that into into yourselves. So what is what is being a commitment to honor look like for you? Yeah, it's really interesting. It's it's it it is and has been a an exploration. I was doing some journaling the other day, and um, I found this phrase coming out of me: uh, uh, "Success today for me is using honesty as a way to find the truth." And when I thought of that, I thought of this interview that was coming up later in the week because we said that we might talk about that. That might be a frame. Leading with honor might be a frame. And for me, it's it's it's. So I've been knocking around in my thinking for several years, but it's still somehow embryonic. And this could be because I'm resisting diving into it in some way. One of the ways that emerged was I realized I had a, at a workshop I was at, a, 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 a kind of intuition-based, pretty transformational experience where I tapped into, I guess, you know, some sense, a sense of purpose that I hadn't had before and uh, you know, I always think the word values gets used a bit too much in kind of coaching places, and I'm not I'm never sure how useful it actually is, even though people think they want to do it. I could talk about I've come to a I've come to a, a place where I I really know why I think it's important. In a way, it is this thing we're talking about is how do you how do you define the rules for your life and how do you live honorably? Well, in some ways, that is you understand what really matters, and then you do those things like you you live in alignment. But one of the things that came up for me was I had this set of values that, you know, these set of words, you know, I will live a life of courage, honor, vulnerability, and truth, and inspire others to do the same. That was what emerged from this workshop. And a couple of years after that, I noticed that I was talking about three of those words a lot, courage, honesty, and vulnerability. And I was never talking about honor. And I get really interested in that stuff. Like, you know, um, if you believe like I do that, you know, the next level of success is about being more of who you really are. It's like, there's this uh -huh. whole bit of me that I'm leaving out, right? Like, what is that? And that's when I started getting interested in leading with honor. And I think it's a concept that is quite absent in its just use of the word. You can tell that by the way that some socialized part of me was happy to talk about courage and vulnerability and even vulnerability, which thanks to Brene Brown, you know, amazing woman that she is, is now, it's now cool to talk about vulnerability um, and, and honesty. We kind of know that's important, but honor is not so much. And yet it was present in so many of the things, I mean, the things that we've been talking about, right? Including the author, David Gemmell, including, um, you know, much more. But so what is about, what is being a commitment to honor? For me, I think it's probably easiest to tell by virtue of a David Gemmell story. <laughs> Let me see if this actually works. I don't think I've ever told this story except to one of my coaches before. But essentially, one of the characters, the one I mentioned before, Druss, he's, someone has asked him or, or he's found himself, one of his friend's sons 
or a, or a, a local prince or s- someone has been abducted and kidnapped. And Dross and his friend, I think his friend has agreed to try and save the person. And Dross and his friend are going to try and do this. And as they do it, they hear someone screaming from a in in the middle of the woods. And Dross walks into this clearing with I can't remember what it is, you know, four armed men tormenting an old man and a and a and a and a girl. And they go to the edge of the clearing, they see it, and Dross walks in and his friend can't believe it because the mission they were on is to save this person who's been kidnapped. And Walking into a, uh, you know, walking into a clearing with four, it might have been twelve armed men, is not a sensible thing to do if you want to to do that. And yet, it is so obvious to trust in that moment that that is the thing that he has to do because it's the right thing to do. Because no matter what is happening, it is, it is never the right thing to do, you know, for him to walk by people in need when he might be able to do something to save them. And, you know, at the end of his life, he's never going to look back on that and think that was the, that was the right thing to do. And he's not going to be at peace with himself. So to make that more real, like most of us don't walk past that kind of thing happening. Although like it, it pays to think about that because sometimes one of us might, and what is the right thing to do in that moment? You know, I guess in, in, you know, it probably would be to call the police <laughs> before you walk in, right? Like whatever the thing is. But 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 I guess what I would say in this moment is like being a commitment to honor is living a life that we can be, that I can be at peace with, where there's no sense that I've walked on by things I shouldn't have walked on by, um, where I haven't let my fears um, rule doing the right thing. I haven't let anything, you know, I haven't let it being hard in all the ways that life is hard get in the way of doing what feels like the right thing. Mm. Mm. And I'd say, I don't know how close you live to a city, but in in some ways, you know, we're, we're all confronted. Like I, I live near New York City. Anytime I pass someone who's without shelter, there's an, there's an opportunity for me to... I don't know, either say something, give, give them a dollar, right? There's that, that is the exact, what, that's what I was in touch with when you were sharing about living and leading with honor and about not passing by when, when there's a, there's something in you that knows this isn't, this isn't the way I, if I look back on my life, I'll, I'll regret that I didn't do something about this or didn't in, in some ways take action and, and. I'm, I'm as guilty as anyone about just walking right by someone and, and making up that it's, you know, it's not my, not my problem to solve, which, which, you know, on a grand scale, of course is true. But in that moment, I, I have a choice about how do I want to, who do I want to be? How do I want to show up? What would be the most Michael thing to do in, in this moment? And walking by is, is not the answer. That is that is definitely not the answer, and it's something that I do, and it's something that I'm working on myself. And I imagine you can you can confirm or deny the the validity of this one, but I, I imagine that honor is a tough one because it's vulnerability is something that you can choose in any given moment about like I'm going to share something about myself that might have not been easy, but but honor it becomes something that's 
it, it much bigger than you, right? It's 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 more of an interfacing of how do I show up for for other people in my life that is aligned with me, and you know, I feel the same way in my life, right? Like courage, vulnerability, those were really really hard to a certain extent. They still are, but. I get to what, you know, in, in kind of safe contained ways, I can, I can show up to and and embody those qualities and, and person to person can, can model those things, but, but honor. Wow. That's, that's a, that's a much bigger word. So I, I'm appreciating that you're, you're stepping into that challenge, right? Like you're that, that is one that many of us don't confront. I imagine a lot of people don't even look back with regret on that because there, you know, we're too caught up in our own stuff to to be thinking about how do I how do I show up for the circumstances and and others around me outside of my family and whatever. And yeah, I'm feeling I'm feeling challenged in in a good way by your share around this. Yeah, and people may not think of it in that way, but but one of the times that it one of the as I've thought about the idea of leading with honor, one of the th- the times that it really confronted me, you know, it's a little bit like the dog barking or, or God speaking in, uh, in flowers when I'm waiting for words, was I had a series of clients, like three, and I'm going to say two weeks, who started work with me. And each of them in different industries, different companies, essentially was asking the same question. And they didn't ask it exactly this way, but they, they said, it. you know, the question was, I want to succeed in my work in some way um, without having to compromise who I am. And that, that is leading with honor, right? It's like, it, it mm-hmm. doesn't feel true to me. Um, like I, I don't, I choose not to live in a world where you have to do the latter in order to do the former, where you have to compromise who you are in order to succeed, right? Again, this is this how I choose to live. So we get another thing there. Like I choose to do my business in, an, in what I believe is an honorable way. And I should say, I learned that by the mistakes I've made. So I think uh, guilt and regret, they are fantastic tools for understanding what really matters and for living, building an honorable, like what what might to me be an honorable way of doing business. So the game in, in the coaching becomes with those clients, how do I succeed without compromising who I am? And what does that mean? And that's not easy. But we get to it, right? It's like the success, like you said, it's a really great thing that I haven't seen before that, that honor really does require um, an interface with something else, with the world. It's about how we show up in some way. And yeah, that, 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 it's an it's a, it's a exciting thought experiment to, to do. And people think it's impossible. And, and you're right to point to that conversation with Toku. It's a great example of a place where people think it's impossible to be honorable. Sales. Lots of people mm-hmm, have that. Mm-hmm. The same with marketing, the same with influence. And yet, if we just slow down, yeah. it's, it's, you know, in fact, you know, in sales, most of the, if you go all the way back to Dave, Dale Carnegie, you'll find that his book about sales, How to Win Friends and Influence People, is incredibly honorable. It's all about really honoring the person that you're selling to. And yet, for some reason, mm-hmm. we have this stage that we have this idea that, that, it, that, it, that it can't be. And, and so, whilst people may not think about honor in that way, if we if we bring it back to that idea of you know I guess it's another way to define honor would be you know again it's all these words in some ways leading with honor is my way of coming back to all these words that happen in the world of coaching and, and that, that don't quite sound get end up sounding a bit cliched you know it's how do I live in alignment with myself how do I be true to myself whilst interfacing with the world and 
not everyone will come into contact with that. And I've got this like little thing that I don't know if this is true, but given what we've been talking about, I wonder if it starts to happen much more as we get into operating more from self-authored perspectives. Once we've let go of socialized, only then do we really have the in alignment with me part of the map. And only then can we see that we're having to compromise myself in order to do it. And only then can it, do we start asking that question? I, I don't know that bit. I've never thought that before. So that's, that's a new thought. I feel like there's so much more that we could explore around this. So I'm going to give you the opportunity if, you, if there's more that you want to say about leadership with honor or fill in the blank domain of your life with honor. And if not, I have, I have a few. These, these are more of my, you know, what, what listeners, if they've been tuned in for more than a couple episodes, would come to, to realize have been my, my go-to questions at the end of conversations. I, I would love to hear your answers to some of the go-tos that I have at the end. But I want to give you the opportunity. We, we still have some time, at least on my end here to uh, further explore other aspects of the conversation, in, including where we already are, leadership and other aspects of your life with honor. Is there, is there more that you feel called to share? Yeah, maybe just a couple of things. So um, one is, or, or two are, that often for people, honor will include honesty and integrity. And so those are, for most people, a part of that. Like Most people, when they slow down with it, will come to, I, I think, and from what I've seen, will come to those, those as being part of it. I'm compromising myself by not being fully truthful here. I'm compromising myself by, you know, I said I'd do this thing and I haven't done it. And so I just want to say, if people want a way to experiment, those are great places to start. You know, you can stop lying. Like, that's a great mm -hmm. place to start. Like, stop it everywhere. There's no need. Like, you know, it's perfectly, again, Jordan Peterson has a great, one of his 12 rules for life is, Tell the truth or at least don't lie. So at least don't lie. That, that'll change your life. Mm. You'll be so much more in it. Mm -hmm. You know, you're so much more integrity. It's transformational practice. And partly because it does that thing that came up for me in my journaling. You then use that honesty to discover what you really believe and what the truth is. But also because it stops all these weird things polluting your life, like, you know, always being speech marks sorry for the delay and replying to someone's email. I realized that was a lie. <laughs> like 98% of the time, I wasn't remotely sorry. I'm just lying. Every email, I'm lying. Like, what is that? And you have these things, they show up like that all the time. And we could just eliminate that and stop polluting your ecosystem with, with these little lies. Now, it's, it's quite hard because then you also have to get into things like when someone says, uh, would you want to come out for a coffee? And you say, so sorry, I can't make it on Wednesday. When really, what you mean is, there's something else I'd rather do. Um, that takes a bit more skill. But even that can be skillfully done. And with integrity, again, we can go back, we can, we can fill the integrity gaps we've had in the past. That's a good exercise. What are all the things that every now and again, I just remember that I once borrowed that book from that woman, I've never given it her back and I've lost it now. Well, at very least I can message her and say, I was just thinking about borrowing that book and never mm. giving it back. You've probably completely forgotten, but in case you haven't, I really don't mind buying you that book again. Like, what's your address? You can fill that. And then instead of having all these things in the back of my mind about integrity, I can have a clearer mind and kind of lived more honorably. We can always honor our word, even if we didn't keep it. And there's always the option to do that. And the last part is, this is a time when having a coach is really useful. Like I'm really grateful for the coaches that have helped me do things honorably, honor myself in a situation 
not compromise myself in a situation that I, it would have just been so hard for me to work through by myself. And I absolutely, it's one of my absolute joys with clients is to find the, you know, someone's like, you know, I can't possibly reach, you know, the kind of sales thing. And I can't possibly reach out to leads, you know, because it's like I'd have to compromise who I am to do that. And then it's just such a beautiful thing to find the the way that that, that person can honor themselves and do the thing like that. So mm-hmm. just wanted to kind of point to those because it can sound maybe a little like uh, – conceptual or old-fashioned but if we make make it real in those ways i think that just kind of for me just wanted to do that to to bring that and ground it and give people who are listening ways to ways to play Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. the as you could tell by my response the so the so sorry for the delay in my response to your email was uh, (laughs) a very funny one and and you know i've actually I, if I go that route, I've more been, uh, maybe, maybe every now and then I say sorry for the delay in my response, but I've been saying thank you for your patience in my, in me taking my time to respond but, to you. But right? do you get that, 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 like, that's beautiful, Mike, because that's just a completely different thing, right? That's like, I'm grateful for, for you, for this, mm-hmm. for this great thing that you've done, rather than I'm guilty for this fake rule yes. that no one has set. But that we somehow got into this habit of wasting millions of hours every year across the country with 7 billion people typing this sentence five times a day. Actually, it came, just briefly on that, that actually didn't come from an experiment with telling the truth. It came from a Gay Hendricks experiment. I know you've had him on the show. Um, He talks about Mm -hmm. putting yourself on a diet of not complaining about time for two weeks and see see how that changes Mm -hmm. your reality. Right? Because how we, how we, speak how we think affects our reality affects in his case he's playing with time and how time feels but in and in 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 the in the tell the truth experiment we're playing with look just really ground yourself in what is true for you in that moment and you have to consider what is true for for you to do that Mm -hmm. but either Mm -hmm. changes reality this isn't you know this doesn't feel like a great place to end because now we, we there's a there's a top this topic around time and Newtonian time and Einstein time with with Gay Hendricks that we you know we could have another at least half hour conversation about that but I I do want to start to land the plane here and yeah, I'm in, I'm in no rush but I I have a few questions one of them has arisen from this conversation that we've had today you know this isn't one of my go tos I'm gonna start with that one. And then move into my go-tos. And so the, the question I'm sitting with right now, which I think will help me reflect on how I would answer this for, for Nathan, it's Gabriella and Leah, yeah? Your, your two children. That's right, names. yeah, yeah. So to play a little bit with this, the, the time bound, not, not that I'm going to die, but if I were to reflect on you know, five years or 10 years future time from now, if Gabriella and Leah were listening to this conversation in 10 years time, or you can make it 20, whatever the time feels right for you, what would you want them to know? Mm. Uh, I mean, the, the strange thing, like I think about this quite a bit, you know, I've had a guest who was on my podcast die. And I'm really aware since I had the, the, the girls that, that, that all these conversations that I have are online, are live, that they one day might be listening when I'm not around anymore, you know, mm. because we don't really know what, what these things we make now, these digital things, they can stay as long as anyone's paying the hosting fees. <laughs> I mean, look, Mike, the, the answer mm-hmm. came really straight away. You know, all I ever want them to know is that, that I love them 
and that they are loved and lovable. Um, and I really hope that they'll know that through being with me. Um, but if they are listening, if you are listening, then I hope you still know that now. That's beautiful. And Nathan, same for you. Yeah. Whatever time you're listening to this, I, I actually had the chance to say this in another show, and I, I totally forgot that it happened. But the, the host asked me some version of what, what would I want Nathan to know? And I said, I unconditionally love you. Yeah. Unconditionally. Love you for exactly who you are. And, and I apologize for the times when I lose sight of that and project my own crap onto you. <laughs> I'll throw that in there too. <laughs> yeah, actually. Yeah, yeah. Sorry for all the ways I fucked you up, girls. But um, also, um, I love you. So thanks for, thanks for answering that one. I... My, my go-to questions are as follows. What's an ordinary everyday moment that brings you great joy? Like uh, reading. And I, at the mo like reading before bed, which is almost always, which at its best is for me like a fantasy novel grounded deeply in old stories about humanity. So when people are really holding the mm. old stories that humans have been telling for thousands of years in some way. What is the kindest thing? This is this is kind of a different backdoor to what do you want to be acknowledged for? And I ask it sometimes. What's what's the kindest thing that someone could say to you about you? Hmm. Huh. I think like, well, speaking in some ways to what we've been talking about, but one of them for me is you were really there when I needed you. Hmm. Again, that, that's that for, for a long time. It's probably not in my list now, but that was a commitment. I mean, it is there. It's one of my commitments. I'm a commitment to being there for the people I care about when they need me, you know? So to know mm -hmm. that people thought that, that, that would be really kind. Mm -hmm. And what would, what would that mean about you if you were there when they really needed you? You know, you're a good friend. So, you know, you're a good, yeah. you're a good brother. You're a good husband, mm -hmm. whatever, whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. This is borrowed from our aforementioned friend, Tim Ferriss. But when you think of the word success, who's the first person that comes to mind? Well, you know, I don't know why. I'm not going to overthink this. So Fred Kaufman, who I was talking about before, comes to mind. And this is, I'm not sure, like, like I don't know about, I don't know much about him. I don't know that much about him. I don't know how happy he is. You know, you never know this from the outside. I, I always thought on that show, on the Tim Ferriss show, when he asked that question, you would get two, there were two possible answers to it. Often people would say, well, it's not really about a person. It's about something else. Or sometimes they would name somebody quite famous and then they would kind of talk, caveat that a bit. But look, what I admire about Fred Kaufman is he's one of the people that I can see really trying to bring honor, although he talks about it sometimes in different ways and sometimes in that way, into the world of into the world we live in, you know, trying to say all those things I said about it is possible to do these, to do these complex, um, these complex things that look like we have to do them a certain way. It's possible to do them and still, you know, be at peace with yourself. It's possible to be skillful in business and be doing the right thing. Um, mm. It's possible to combine an interest and passion for kind of the speech marks traditional success with 
an interest and passion for some kind of less traditional kind of success that we're talking about. You know, the success that's more about mm. meaning and more about success beyond the, the, the normal definitions. And so for all of those reasons, there's a lot that I admire about him. Mm. All right, Robbie. Well, that leads into the final. Well, but before I do the, the final question, I'll I'll give you the opportunity if I if I miss anything, fill in the blanks here. But you're you're most active on LinkedIn, and and people can connect with you at your website, Robbie Swale, which is your your name here, R O B B I E S W A L E dot com. And I'm sure you know all your books and everything is linked there. Is there are there any other places you'd want to point people to? Coach's Journey podcast, the, the 12 minute method podcast, right? Yeah, that's right. So for people who are coaches or interested in coaching, there's loads and loads of resources at thecoachesjourney.com. Everything else, I mean, for everything, robbieswell.com is the place to go. Yeah, the books are on Amazon, all the places. The podcasts are on all the podcast places. I am on other social media, but LinkedIn is the one that mostly I'm on, um, partly because originally that's where my writing practice started. And so I'm still there mm. many years later. Mm-hmm. And the final question, and, and in this interview, it actually feels a little anticlimactic because <laughs> it's, you know, the, the question that you, you know what it is, what does it mean to live a meaningful life? Like you've, you've already given it so much more depth and richness than what might be possible in a kind of, you have to formulate it in a three minutes to five minutes or less version. But I still am curious, you know, given that we've had such a, a meaningful conversation today, what in this moment feels to you like it would constitute living a meaningful life. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Given the conversation we've had, I mean, both, you know, one of the things I love about myself and one of the things that, that, that I, that causes all my struggles <laughs> is my mm. tendency to question things. Um, mm -hmm. but what came up as you were saying that is, you know, you can be pretty certain that you're living a meaningful life. If you're asking the question, what would make this meaningful? What would be meaningful mm -hmm. about this? What would be a meaningful way to spend my life? Um, and that's pretty much all you can do. Like that's the antithesis to, you know, waking up to saying, I'll, I'll get things meaningful once I've made this much money or I'll retire. And that's when I'll, I'll find happiness or pretending you'll never die and then dying and never having thought about it. The antithesis to all that is, now asking like what would be meaningful what is meaningful to me and those answers my my experience of asking questions like that is there are consistencies in asking that question and there are things that change and there are things that change it because i change and mm -hmm. the world changes and so the answers are different and that's probably why it's a it's a living question not a um not a single answer mhm mm mhm mm well, Robbie, this the conversation, we talked about aliveness from the onset and a lot of what you're doing or pointing to with these types of questions is that they're alive, right? Like what is a meaningful life is an alive question. Our relationships are alive. The world is alive. It's constantly evolving, constantly changing. And I'm very in touch with the, the beauty of being conscious and, and being alive by way of this conversation right now in this moment. So I just, I want to acknowledge you and appreciate you that we at the kind of right in the, <laughs> couldn't have possibly planned for this, but right, right in the middle of that sweet spot we were talking about, right? Like a little shy of two hours <laughs> right now. <laughs> we've, uh, we've explored the depths of a lot of different aspects of, of what it means to be alive in our world and, and what matters most to us. And 
confronting mortality. And, you know, I, I experience you. You're, you're sitting with this, this kind of question of what does it mean to be an honorable person, an honorable leader? And I'm, I'm really, I experience you in that way. You know, like I, I experience you as someone who is living with honor, who is there for the people that matter most to him. I've never actually been there for it, but I just get the sense of when, when you say that, there's a, there's a valence to the way that you're saying it, that like this matters to me at my core. And I really feel that. And I feel that in the conversations that you have on the Coach's Journey podcast and in the however many times we've connected, maybe three or three or four times, that there's a level of care. And I look forward to almost every conversation. I mean, not almost. I, I think I've looked forward to every conversation I've had on this podcast. But I just, I had the sense that we are... I don't know, we're connected on this, this level that's more than, we're like, we call it fellow kindred spirits or you know, pe people that are just consummate students of, of life. And I, I feel that we are, we're walking similar paths in our life. And it's just been a, a real delight to, to host you on, on my version, long form version of, of podcasting and on the Mike Search for Meaning show. So thanks for being here with me. Yeah, well, I've, I've noticed this a few times recently when we've been emailing about this, that every time you acknowledge me for something, I find myself thinking, yeah, I could have said that about Mike. So thank you, Mike, because those things, they were really kind, like kind, kind of, they could have been another answer to that question. Um, and luckily, you know, for me, you're not the only person to say things like that. Um, you know, my coach said it as a challenge. He was like, you know, that leading with honor will start with you leading with honor. <laughs> um, but also mm -hmm. people, have, you know, that that is the feedback that i get and it is it is a product of being interested in these things i think for a long time but also of doing you know the things we've been talking about in this conversation really thinking about how do we create the rules that you know that that allow us to do things the way our soul in some way tells us we should do them but like it's yeah. been a it's been a total pleasure time's flown by and yeah i love the curiosity and the exploration that happens through this podcast and um i think you're making something special and i'm glad you didn't do 30 minute episodes <laughs> i'm glad i didn't either yeah this uh the, the longer conversations uh, they do they they suit me they fit me well so thanks again robbie i i really i receive and appreciate the the kind words and yeah there's one of one of my other teachers his name is raul espinosa he he taught me this phrase that i've been saying over and over again since he taught me spot it got it and in a lot of ways the things the things that i am seeing and acknowledging in any guest in you and in any person or any guests i have on the show it's it's something that i love about myself too and so I can, I can acknowledge and, and hold that to be true as well. So thanks for reflecting that back. And to everyone who's listening, thanks for, thanks for spending two hours with us and in whatever increments you did it, maybe you did 20, 30 <laughs> or maybe because this conversation was so fucking awesome. You just, you just, you didn't anticipate it, but you spent the full two hours with us. I really appreciate you being here. If you enjoy what I'm up to, then please leave a review, subscribe on YouTube, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, wherever you're listening. Show some support for the show. I really appreciate it. And sending you each lots of love. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to listen to Mike's Search for Meaning. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, share this episode with your friends, and leave a review. I look forward to seeing you next time, my friends. And until then, stay safe, 
stay well, and keep living with purpose. Peace.